This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. What's a new version of that song? Who is that? I don't know. I like it, though. I do, too. It's a little chill. Like our next guest, Peggy Collins. She's actually not that chill. We like to see her dance when she goes by she uh, our studio. She's our just investing think team leader. Just <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. I'm just kidding. <laughs> there, it's, it's a little Venice going energy. on there. Uh, so, Pegs, thanks for stopping by our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, not surprisingly, your team has the most read story on the Bloomberg terminal today. I'm just going to read the headline. Hedge fund dream job is vanishing as harsh new reality sets in. And if that's not Bloomberg Terminal clickbait, I don't know what is. But there's something pretty serious underneath that, which is this shift that's happening within hedge funds, which are already facing a bit of an existential crisis, right? Well, that's right, Jason. As you said, they there is a shift going on right now, and it's twofold. One of the things that's happening is you have the onslaught of automation into the industry. So they're trying to deal with that. In some ways, it's creating opportunities for firms like Rentech and Two Sigma, who are using big data and quickly trading and getting the benefit of that. But on the other hand, it's making the um, old school analyst or stock picker um, potentially less in demand. And for people who might have gone into the industry in their 20s and are now in their 40s or 50s, they're seeing less opportunities out there. At the same time, a lot of Firms have been underperforming this year, even with the volatility that came back into the market. So we reported yesterday that Baliazny, one of the big firms, big scoop by my colleague Kathy Burton, was cutting 125 jobs, which is about 20% of their firm. So mm. those people who are being essentially shrunk out of certain firms are having a harder time finding other places to go in the hedge fund industry. I feel like it's the hedge, fu- hedge fund industry playing catch up with like the rest of the world in terms of, right, you, yeah. you go to a job, you get some experience, you make some good calls, and like you get promoted and recognized, or you go out and your own with some other folks you see that in the hedge fund industry but pick any industry right you start to get some expertise you start to cost the company a little bit more and we've seen companies kind of clean out those workers and bring in less expensive workers and maybe they've been able to do it because technology has given them greater capabilities and 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 so on but it's just interesting i feel like it's now happening in the hedge fund industry that's great points, Carol. And also you're, where you're seeing the growth is in VC land, in technology, and in private equity, which you know really well, Jason. So there's been a shift in terms of where the opportunities for jobs are just because of where the money's going. Right. And so how does this end, do you think? I mean, what? because that I, I sort of walk away from a story like this, and, and, and I think to all the good work that, that your team is doing about where we end up. The hedge fund industry I don't think is going away and yet the assets grew last year right 
Right. And are growing again this year? That's right. They're growing in part because there is some appreciation there. So we're not seeing the ton of flows of new money that we've seen in the industry like private equity. But you're right, Carol. I mean, it's a 3.2 trillion, 3.3 trillion with a T dollar market. And part of that is because you've seen a lot of big pension funds over the years uh, uh, expand in terms of their allocations to alternative investments, which includes hedge funds and private equity. But also, I will say there are a number of investors who are saying you should be diversified, but also hedge funds can, over time, protect you from some of the downsides. So if we're going into a market like today, where you're seeing a lot of red up up on the screen, for some wealth advisors, that may encourage them to actually take a shot on some of the firms. But we're seeing a barbelling. A lot of the firms in the middle who weren't so big um, or in a niche trade that people think they're the best at are being squeezed out. I do wonder, right, in a market where we've been had such a crazy year, a lot of ups and downs, but right, that's the whole idea of hedge funds. Maybe not so much on the upside, but less on the downside. If you start to see investors recognizing that or see that in the performance, I do wonder if then you have the wave of investors going back to hedge funds. It's been hard to do that in a market where just everything just kept going up for a long time. That's right. And I think there are days like today where, which are still hard for hedge fund managers yeah. to shift to, even if they have lots of algorithms backing them up or more than they did in the past. When we see yesterday in the market's up, green, 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 and then today we're seeing yeah. like a plummet, it still is hard for even computers to necessarily take advantage of that that change in sentiment so quickly. But if we do have a slide down, they could. You know, we got a chance to catch up with Katja Porchikansky, who's one of the uh, who's the lead author of this piece uh, for our weekend Business Week show. And we were able to sort of synthesize, in a lot of ways, Carol did a great job synthesizing the two stories she's had, both of which have been the most read stories. You know, the story yesterday, we had her on this show talking about essentially Wall Street's Me Too ripple effect, this idea that you have men acting in a very like, just don't let me near any women kind of way, and just like a very disturbing kind of uh, next chapter of that. And then you have this, and and this is ultimately a people business. And so it really, taking these together, right. it's kind of a bleak view of Wall Street, well, I have to say. Well, and I just kept saying, like, the pendulum's swinging extreme. And I do wonder, as the markets, like, as we get back to a more normal environment, whether hedge funds come back. Yes, time. and 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 Conti has done a great job. It's a blockbuster week for her in yeah. terms of reporting with Jillian Tan and Nishan Kumar on these stories. But they're both essentially workplace stories yes. as right. well. Yeah. Right. It's workers having to retrain themselves, yeah. having to uh, to learn new skills, and then also for us as people in work environments to learn new skills in terms of how to be sensitive to each other and what work in I, diverse workplaces. I said disruption is a key theme of our show today. We talk about it and throw it around on a daily basis, but every I feel like almost every I believed you when you said it. You don't have to look at me like I didn't believe you. I fully believed you. I am bought on board. I don't want to get disrupted by you. So this next company will take you to some pretty cool places. They've got a new take when it comes to the hospitality industry. We want to bring in our guest, Jay Roberts. He's founder and chief executive officer at Domeo, based in New York City, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Tuesday. It's funny, we've been talking, Jason and myself, a lot about the hospitality industry uh, with the likes of Ian Schrager and Harvey Spivak over at Equinox. And we'll, we'll talk about kind of what they're doing, but I want to get to what you guys are doing. Tell me about your approach. Yes. Uh, so great to be here. Thanks, guys. Uh, Domeo is disrupting the group travel space. 
And so three years ago, I was doing Airbnb out of my bedroom in Midtown, and I was working in real estate investment banking. Um, and I saw this amazing need to sort of professionalize the industry. And I hosted people from all over the world, from Europe, from Asia, from South America. And what I realized is that, is that they want an elevated experience and that groups and families really are looking for something that's more affordable. So Domeo is leading the way in apartment hotels. And so we're offering larger spaces to group travelers. It is interesting to think about how much Airbnb and VRBO and others have changed the mindset mm -hmm. of what we expect when we travel. I mean, for my family, at least, it, we definitely prefer, especially if we're traveling overseas or something like that, to stay in an apartment, an apartment or a house. And increasingly, if we're traveling with extended family, we all want to be together. We don't want to get six hotel rooms. So what? It, what and you happened? often want your own kitchen, like yes. to do, like make breakfast or something. Airbnb evangelized and educated the market that homes were a good option. And Airbnb is a marketplace, and so they made it really easy for people to book. Where the puck is going, our brands are the next chapter ah. in this evolving home sharing story. And so Domeo is creating a consistent brand that consumers and guests can rely that's on. That's interesting because that is that's the roll of the dice, right? Is that even in the same city, using the same service, you can get two wildly different things and the rating system will, uh, will only get you so far. So what about from a service perspective? How does that figure in? Yeah, so from a service perspective, Domeo leases full buildings, and okay. so our model is very similar to WeWorks. And so the future and the evolution of this is apartment hotels, and so full buildings that are dedicated for groups and families that are traveling. Uh. And so with Domeo, you can book with the click of a button. You can order room service. You can uh. order cleaning. We don't clean every day, so we're not like a full hotel. Right. But you can order it, and so it's on demand. And millennials, they really want the option of these amenities. So what have you seen in terms of growth of your business demand? Talk to me as much as you can about financials. We're Bloomberg. We love to get into the numbers of things. Yeah. So we, we closed a $50 million joint venture earlier this year. So money's the, coming in. Investors like what you're doing. <laughs> they, they do. We closed our Series A for, with Tribeca Venture Partners, SoftBank New York. And so now we're really focused on growth and scaling the business. We've grown about 500% this year, and we're looking to grow another- From a low base, safe to say? That, that's right. But we now have the capital, and we're in seven markets. We'll double our footprint in the next 90 days. What are you going to spend that money on? Growing properties. What, and, so just- So leasing, leasing new properties and, and really building out the furniture and our supply base so that consumers and customers can find us in more markets. All right. So if I'm signing up and I'm price shopping, I, what, what am I going to see in terms of how much this costs on a relative basis to an Airbnb situation or a more straight traditional hotel situation? So it really varies city to city, but Domeo compared to Airbnb um, may be a little, a little bit higher on the, the price point. But you know what you're going to get. You're willing to pay for that service. Right. Um, we average about $100 per bedroom. Okay. And so we're really anywhere from 20 to 40% below the cost of hotels. Right. And so groups and families, they can stay with Domeo. They know what they're going to get. And they're going to save money as well. Jay, I got to ask you, though, and especially in an environment where I feel like so many people are talking about recession downturn, it sounds like the bulk of your business is regular people like Jason and myself and our families or things like that. Is that true? Is there a commercial side to it? Because I do wonder, in a downturn, one of the first things that people cut back on often is travel and things like that. that that's a great question. So 30% of our business um, or, or travelers are business travelers. 
And what we would say is that where we're at in the economy, uh, you need to be smart about the properties that you sign and underwriting the fundamentals of a business. We are a startup, but we are not just splashing cash around, and we're making sure that we have good payback periods, and that's why investors are continuing to put money into Domeo. You staying in big cities for the most part? That's right, yeah. Jay Roberts, founder and cool. CEO of Domeo, based here in New York City in the studio, the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, with us today. Come back and see us. I really right. want to see uh, how this plays out. Also, would love your further insights into the real estate market and hospitality market. Is the plan to go public? We'll see. I've taken companies public, <laughs> but we want to we want to focus on growth and building an enduring company. So. Very cool stuff. Yeah. Got to get that one last question. I know, I know, because like I'm always curious I what like, the end game yeah. is. And there's a lot of money out that we talk about. We do. That companies don't have to go public anymore because there's a lot of investment money out there. Here I go again, dialing your number. Blakey, how you just won't pick up the phone. It's so quaint, the idea of like calling someone on the phone. What's that? I don't think the kids are doing that these days. But they do continue uh, to use the iPhone, maybe not as much as they were. And therefore, Apple trying to find some new and clever ways to get us to buy yeah. a phone. Mark Gurman, our tech guru out in Los Angeles, he joins us, as well as Shira Ovide, tech columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. She's here with us. Tech guress. Tech guress. <laughs> uh, Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. That's where she is. So, guys, I have to ask you, I actually, not even knowing that we were doing this story yet, I went shopping for a new iPhone. I have an iPhone 6. Um, so a little out of date. That's the one I just got rid of, actually. So there you go. Yeah. So, but I have to say, I was a little bit surprised because they are starting to make a deal here. So, Mark, come on in here. Why is Apple all of a sudden maybe being a little more flexible or a little more aggressive on the marketing front? You know, it, it's very apparent based on the supply chain checks and everything we're hearing out of Asia, that the iPhones, the new ones, the 10s, 10s Max and 10R, are not selling up to the, some people's expectations. I don't know if that's the expectations of suppliers, expectations of just investors, analysts, and consumers, expectations of Apple themselves. But clearly something's not matching up here, and they're using whatever marketing prowess they have in order to turn that around, and it's very likely they will be able to. All right. I've just got to read the first line of Shira Ovide's column because I just love it. It's just kind of perfect. We have the best writers here. Clutch your pearls. Prepare the fainting couches. Are you ready for this bombshell? Apple Inc. actually has to try and sell its phones. Ugh. Alas, how embarrassing. You didn't put alas in there. I put that in there. <laughs> alas is good. I should have added that. <laughs> but I mean, right. Like, they have not really had to do the hard sell, right? We all just were like, tell me what you got. Tell me how it costs. I'll, I'll pay up for it. It's a different environment. It is a different environment. I and mean, we shouldn't say that Apple just kind of late na- always let nature take its course. This is a company that is very savvy about consumer product marketing, about pricing and and product segmentation strategies. But it's also true that in the last five years, the smartphone market has been booming, Um, that there was a a global phenomenon where people were either getting online for the first time in places like China, and that was happening on smartphones, or people were switching from, you know, the old flip phones of old to smartphones at an incredible rate, and that was wind at Apple's back. And now the opposite is happening. The smartphone market is saturated. Uh, Almost everybody who is going to buy a smartphone probably already has one, and so now Apple's going to have to try harder to sell phones into a market where demand is flat. 
And so, Mark, they also have to that they, they seem to be sort of even reorienting some of their staff. Right. I mean, they really are. This, this is not just like, oh, let's put some stuff on sale and see what happens. It feels like they're thinking about this in a different way. Right. So about a month ago, there was what one person dubbed a fire drill internally, where they reorganized some of their marketing staff to focus on coming up with new promotions and trade-in offers in order to reboost uh, iPhone sales. So this is clearly a, a dedicated effort, and it's interesting uh, that they've been that they're doing this. I've, I've never really seen such a push like this, especially right around the launch timing. Well, I'm curious what you guys think, because you know, here Jason was saying, "I'm going to replace my phone," and he's noticing that you know it looks like all of a sudden Apple's like offering up some deals. I mean, does this kind of cheapen the brand? Mark, you take it first. I mean, do you feel like that makes it, you know, this has always been the, the, I just remember when Apple phones first came out and people would, you know, put them on a conference table to be like, I got the Apple phone. Like it was this really cool thing to have. Yeah, no, exactly. And I just wonder, does it cheapen the brand when you start to do some negotiating and making some deals to sell more? You know, what's really interesting to answer that is that the phone that they're doing all these, you know, big discount deals for is the iPhone XR. This was already their low-end phone. This is the one that was supposed to sell like hotcakes because it came in colors. $750, so you're paying 250 less for many of the iPhone XS's features. So that's the one they're really up playing here. They haven't really touched the, uh, you know, the fancy gold ones or the, the stainless steel models yet. What do you think, Shira, when it comes to, you know, that they're being more like a, a regular telecom company or a regular tech company. Yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, it tarnishes the brand, I think, a little bit on the margins. The danger, of course, is the danger that any retailer faces that does heavy, that does regular discounting, which is people get trained to wait for sales or to wait for discounts, and they will refuse to pay full price for the product. I don't think Apple is there yet. And we should say, right, that to Apple's credit, they have made the default price of their phones now $1,000. And people are, many millions of people are paying that happily. And so that does show you that in a, in a market for smartphones that have generally become a commodity where people are looking at price first, um, Apple people who love iPhones are willing to spend that amount of money and that and that shows the strength of Apple's brand. Yeah, let's be clear. I feel a little bit like a sucker because I upgraded one of my son's phones just a couple months ago and paid full price. So right, now right. I'm seeing this trade and be like, what? What? Yeah. Is, listen, guys, though, I feel like this is the thing. This is the story we have been talking about with Apple for a long time. You know, Mark, it. Apple's got to diversify, right, in terms of its product offerings so that when those iPhone sales start to maybe dip, uh, they've got other things to to draw upon. Here's the problem, and I I totally agree with you, but I I just think that's an overplayed notion. We talked Mm. about it in our story today, to be fair. I don't know if there's really something that's going to be able to replace the success of the iPhone, the revenues brought in by the iPhone. I mean, we have a stat in there that the iPhone itself, revenue-wise, for across 2018, Apple's fiscal year, was equal to Disney plus either Alphabet slash Google or Amazon combined. So we're talking about the Disney plus an Amazon combined is just the iPhone. And if you look at everything else they're working on, whether it's satellites, self-driving car technology, uh, new versions of the iPad and Mac and the Apple Watch, AR headsets, none of these things are going to replace the iPhone probably ever in terms of that much growth 
that much usage and the amount of money those bring in. So I think they're just yeah. going to have to keep iterating on the iPhone and just make sure these things, you know, keep getting upgraded. Shira's nodding away. I mean, it's just, it's a stunning, what Mark said is stunning. And it, what it basically amounts to is that Apple is just like every other big company, right? The problem that Ford and GM have is that their biggest product is selling cars and they're trying to figure out what does our future look like if we can't sell more cars every year? Yeah. Coke is trying to diversify away from, you know, sugared fizzy water. And so now Apple has exactly the same dilemma, which is a strange phenomenon for a tech company, right? Is they're going to have to figure out how to diversify that's their a, own product. But that's a great, that's a great analogy. Or, or to talk about something like Coca-Cola, that really the bulk of their products, right? It's, it's a, a product for the most part. Right. And they've got to figure out, so what's, what's our next hundred years or our next 50 years? Shira Oviday, tech columnist, tech guru-s, I believe is what uh, Carol Masser called her. I believe Master that's the terminology. Uh, for Bloomberg Gress. Opinion Gress. here with us in New York, Mark Gurman, tech guru. Guru queen. Uh, out in <laughs> L.A. Carol's just going to keep going with this guru guru-s thing. Guru, as long madam. As Thank <laughs> no, you both for joining us. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. It makes sense. Because we're sort of talking about betting. Yes, we are. But in a different way. Scott Soshnick always brings us the best, the latest, and the greatest when it comes to the world of sports. And his headline about this, sports betting gets new meaning as startup invests in athletes. We have the president of said startup, startup Peter Gordine. He's the president of Home Court Capital here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Peter, Welcome. Great name for the company. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> well done. This is a this is quite a novel idea. You are investing in athletes, not from a sponsorship perspective. You are investing with them, essentially using their income. Tell us how this works. Well, Home Court Capital is designed to make investments in early career professional athletes across the three professional major professional sports with apologies to NHL and that would be the NFL, NBA and Major League Baseball. And effectively what we do is identify promising early career professional athletes across these three main sports and make equity investments in these in these athletes in return for a small percentage of their future income. You're a startup investor when it comes to sports. No, I mean, it's really interesting, Fair. right? How do you identify, though, the athletes that you want to invest in, that you say, okay, this is going to be somebody who's going to have a long-term career? We have worked very long and very hard at developing, combined with big data analytics and machine learning techniques, a proprietary selection process, which uh, I think Scott affectionately dubbed our secret sauce, <laughs> which we feel really terrific about in its predictive abilities to identify these early career athletes that we think are going to have very long, very successful careers. It's truly the Moneyball era, which is what's got in his story. So without giving away all of the secret sauce, give us an element of that. Like yeah. what, what do you look for? What are some of the – what's part of the recipe at least? Obviously, performance on the court right. is the primary driver. Uh, we look at specifically for the NBA and for the NFL, their first year, their rookie year performance – on the court. But our data models and our analytics also take into account various economic factors around the leagues, projections going forward. We kind of mix them all into this pot, and that affects the analysis. Are you finding equal opportunities among the three sports that you've targeted, baseball, football, and basketball? 
The answer is it depends on the timing. Sometimes, currently, the answer would be yes, depending on sort of the way the economic winds blow, lockouts, labor strife, things that might impact the league, league trends, player positions in the NFL. One day it's the quarterback with the rocket arm. The next it's the left tackle who has got supernatural ability. Running backs were all the rage a few years ago. Now maybe not so much. So it's all these kind of factors that go into affecting our analysis. Tell us about the negotiations and, and the initial conversations with the athletes and their teams, their managers, their agents, their parents. Um, initial reluctance? What, what are those conversations like? Well, I think the important thing to get out and what we've been trying to do most importantly is emphasize what we perceive, home core capital perceives to be the benefits in our investment. And that's that we're not making loans to these athletes. Right. We're making investments in these athletes. And therefore, if for whatever reason, if um, due to injury, due to a material change in circumstance that's unforeseen, these athletes do not make this money in the future, there are no specific or, or ongoing repayment, repayment obligations to home court capital. This is the real selling point for us and something I think everybody should find really attractive. That's fascinating. So if they do have an injury, they're not penalized with the, in terms of the money that's been invested into them or that they've received, they don't have to pay that back. That's correct. But if they do really, really well, what kind of sharing of their wealth and their success are they doing with the investors? Well, there's no one-size-fits-all right. investment, obviously. Fair As enough, you notice, right. are there different opportunities across the three major sports? And even within the sports by position, everybody obviously doesn't project out to make the same kind of salaries. So I will start by saying each investment is very specific to that individual. Having said that, we're looking at 8 to 10% of that future earnings in exchange for our investment, roughly as a ballpark to use. It's also interesting, too, that you are doing things to essentially protect your investment, whether that is mm-hmm. rehabilitation from an injury, ongoing training, you know, all sorts of things, even if it, you know, helping them with a, you know, sort of life-changing financial uh, need, I would imagine, buying a house or, you know, having a kid or something like that, right? Well, I mean, our, our selling point is here. Here's an opportunity to accelerate your income, to de-risk that future cash, you know, income, and to hedge against injury or any material change in circumstances I mentioned earlier. And what these people, what these athletes can do with these investments are reinvest in themselves, yeah. take right. that capital build their brand, whatever they see fit. And, you know, I want to stress that, it, you know, our check is to them and it's for them to use yeah. as they see it. This is such a cool thing. Um, come back at a later date. We'd love to know how things are going. I'd love to. Thanks for having me. We're really yeah. excited. A pleasure. Good luck. Peter Gordine, he's president of Home Court Capital in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Great story. Check out the story by our own Scott Soshnick. It's on the Bloomberg Terminal at Bloomberg.com. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
It is time for the drive to the close, and I think it's important on a day like this just to kind of throw those market numbers out at you once again. The S&P 500 down 88 points, down 3.2%. Dow off 764 points, a loss of 2.9%, and the Nasdaq down 3.7%. Quick check on Treasuries. We heard Don talking us through the numbers, but that uh, 10-year note with the yield of 291, five-year note yielding 278, and that two-year note uh, with the yield of 280. So we talk about the yield curve, the flattening, and the inversion. Man, you really see it when you walk through those uh, yields. John Levito is with us. He's co-chief investment officer of Global Fixed Income at American Century Investments. Perfect guest to have on a day like today. Fixed income assets under management, roughly $41 billion overall. The company's assets under management, $160 billion. John, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Nice to have you here with us. This market environment, John, I don't know. You look at it. I don't know. How do you make sense? What does it tell you about what's kind of going on in the broader economy and what's on the mind of investors? Well, I think what's been happening over the last few days and the last few months in particular is the market's become a little bit more concerned about growth going forward. You know, we've had a bit of a sweet spot, you know, in, in 2018, particularly in the U.S., where growth has been accelerating and it's been, it's, it's been looking pretty strong. But now with the, the, the various tensions that we see, ge- geopolitical tensions around trade, uh, tensions in Europe with Italy, uh, Brexit, I think really there's a, there's a number of um, stress points in the economy that are concerning investors that maybe that we're seeing the best of growth maybe maybe behind us. I go back to something you said, it's probably now a few weeks ago, Carol, which is this idea of synchronized global growth. It's not a thing. No. It's not a thing anymore. Quickly became not a thing anymore. Right. And it was. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, it, it really wasn't. So so where do you go sort of in, in a market like this? Because I do feel like people are scratching their heads and thinking, you know, they're looking at all the numbers that Carol just laid out. And so what are you advising people to do? What are you doing in this sort of market, John? Yeah. Well, to your point about synchronized growth not being a thing, it hasn't really been a thing for a while. If you look at really 2018, it's really been a story of desynchronization, right? Yeah. U.S. growth right. has been strong. Europe started out strong, but we saw deceleration as the year went on, and we saw emerging markets really be weak for most of the year, uh, and so really being on, on their back heel. So for us, we're playing it real, fairly safe. We look at our portfolios, we manage portfolios for you know, all different types of clients, and we are really running at lower risk levels right now. When you went back a few months ago and we saw credit spreads. Is it because you, forgive me for interrupting, sure. but is it because you do think the world is coming undone or is it just that you say, all right, folks, things are moderating, so we're going to be smart here, but we're not running from everything? It's the latter. We don't think everything is coming undone. We really think it's just a repricing to a new norm going forward. The markets over the last handful of months before the volatility were really priced for a, for a a lower volatility scenario, strong growth in the U.S., uh, you know, tensions not really rising. But as we got closer to the end of the year and when the trade situation became getting closer to January, Brexit getting closer to the votes, what we really saw was is the fact that markets were not pricing potential increased volatility down the road. So we pulled back the strings a little bit and said, you know what? Let, let the market reprice, and we can re-enter the market at cheaper levels. So, no, it's not coming undone. It's just repricing to a, a newer, higher level of volatility uncertain, and uncertainty going forward. Well, and that repricing, it feels like, has been happening, and it's manifesting itself in all sorts of different ways, including in commodities. Oil is a yeah. story we've been watching, obviously, very closely, even you know through currencies. So how do you pick the one, not to be too cynical or uh, dark, but like how do you pick the one that's most worrisome <laughs> of, all, of all of these worries? that are out there? Well, you know, it's, it's difficult to say what's the most worrisome, but I would say for me, 
it's probably the, the China, China trade tensions. Interesting. Uh, I think if you look at it and look at the way the market's behaving in the last two days, the relief rally yesterday yeah. when we thought maybe we were getting some good news over it's the like weekend. It's like cause and effect. That's cause right. and effect, we saw. So, so it, can tell, it really tells you where the market is focused. And, uh, you know, the try to t- China trade tensions can really do a lot of, uh, if, if it continues, the escalation, can uh, undo a lot of the good that we've seen over the last year with regard to deregulation, dereg- tax cuts. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a global phenomenon, just not just a domestic phenomenon. So, John, if you're dialing back, are you actually moving into cash? Or tell me where you are moving around money because you think, all right, we just got to dial back a little bit. So for us, it's not moving into cash. It's really just reallocating our assets. So from, you know, from in, if within the credit spectrum, we reduce, you know, we, we increase the quality of our portfolio. We may, we may sell and reduce high-yield securities, investment-grade credit securities, buy more treasury securities. So it's really just coming closer to home and having, uh, you know, uh, instruments that will perform better during periods of stress. So upping U.S. exposure over other forms or other other sovereign around the world? So in what? general, over the last couple of months, we have increased our, U, our U.S. Yeah. Uh, sovereign exposure uh, on the margin, uh, but uh, not dramatically. Shorter-term durations? Yeah, shorter to medium term, you know, two to five year paper. Given how flat the yield curve is, it doesn't really pay to go further out the yield curve. And what do you see when you look at sort of corporate leverage? Because that's something that people, you yeah. know, we, we talk to CEOs, we talk to investors like yourself, you know, all across the spectrum. That's something that we always get concerned about, it feels like, in this part of the cycle. Yeah, I mean, the, the credit cycle is longer in the tooth. We are in the latter innings of the credit cycle and, and the, and the, and the, uh, and the economic cycle. And if you look at where the potential leverage is, it's really in the triple B space, hmm. where in the prior cycle, when we had you know, 2008, 2009, it was lower down the credit quality. So that's significant because triple B, there's a lot of debt in that area. And so if you were to see an issue with regard to sort of um, you know, uh, deteriorating credit, it makes the high yield market a little bit more uh, testy because you have a lot of paper falling into it. Now, we're not saying that's going to happen, but it's something to keep an eye on. And if you could right. see, for instance, GE is a good example of, right. of that. Right, exactly. Would you buy GE debt? We, we've been underweight going into this cycle, and we have not changed that. Um, the very smart John Tucker sends me a message and says, and as for today, who wants to hold a position with the U.S. markets closed tomorrow? You know, with so much going on, who knows if some news is going to come out of China? I mean, is any of that at play here, do you think? With regard to... With the markets being closed tomorrow because um, of um, the funeral proceedings for... Talk about short term. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, like, no, I do wonder if we're afraid to hold a little bit. You know, if, if you look at how quickly the news changes these days, just doing, again, going back to this weekend and Monday and Tuesday, yeah. there is a possibility that's, yeah. that's a part of it. But those are, those are shorter term uh, strategies okay. and you know, the fundamentals will play out over time. John, nice to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. Come back. John Levito. He is co-chief investment officer of Global Fixed Income over at American Century Investments. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.